From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sensual please remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. So the Labour Party wants Boris Johnson to be clearer about any possible further restrictions in England, saying that there is still confusion about the festive period. It comes as isolation time has been cut back. People who test positive for COVID in England will now only have to isolate for seven days instead of 10 if they can produce two negative tests. The government will also buy 4.25 million more COVID-19 antiviral pills from Pfizer and Merck to combat the surge in Omicron infections and reduce the rising pressure on the NHS. Meanwhile, we're expecting the Health Security Agency to release early real-world data on the Omicron variant before Christmas. And Politico this morning reported that it will show that Omicron is milder than Delta, but not necessarily mild enough to avoid large numbers of people being hospitalised across the UK. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is Martin Day, MP, the Scottish National Party's health spokesperson. Martin, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for being with us. So if Omicron, first of all, does end up... um, to be milder than Delta, if we get this data uh, from the health agency, ministers at Westminster perhaps will have been right then to hold off on extra tougher measures. What do you think? Well, I'm I'm not sure about that, to to be honest. I think the the big problem we've all got is we don't actually know what the numbers being hospitalised and seriously ill will will transmit to be. Now, we all hope it will be much milder than what we've seen with Delta, but what we do know for a fact is that it is spreading at an exponential rate. So we're going to have, perhaps, if we're lucky, a much smaller percentage of a much bigger number, and that could still be absolutely catastrophic for pressures on our health and, indeed, our other emergency services and and vital supplies like deliveries and supermarkets and everything. Um, In Scotland, mask wearing has has always been uh, necessary. Has it worked, in your view? I think I think it has helped. I mean, everything we do, and, and it's up to many of us as individuals to take responsibility to try and lessen the impact of this terrible uh, virus on our communities. So I think it does help uh, reduce the transmission, but it also uh, very significantly sends a signal to people that things are not yet back to normal. And I think that's been a very important uh, differentiation in the devolved nations compared to uh, in England, uh, which is now catching mm-hmm. up with us on that point, obviously. Do we need to upgrade masks to more surgical levels, surgical grade masks? 
I don't think we as individuals need to do that. Obviously, there's a role for that in the in the essential healthcare services. What we need to make sure we're doing is wearing a, a well-fitting mask and wearing it properly over both our nose and our mouth so that it does prevent us accidentally transmitting any virus that we might have onto our friends, neighbours and people just in our vicinity. Okay. Um, in terms of Scotland, Hogmanay events have been cancelled. Um, there is talk of more restrictions even being added in Scotland after Christmas. Um, do COVID passes, for example, do you think that those have worked and Scotland's cutting outdoor events to 500 people? I mean, yes, that means that, that football matches won't be able to take place, but 500 people is still a lot. It is, it is still a lot, of course. That that's, should be stressed as for an outside event, so you've got yeah. ventilation and other measures there as well. I, I think the COVID passes have probably helped a bit. They've, they've certainly pushed more people towards positively getting vaccinated, which I think is the big factor that makes a huge difference. So if we get people vaccinated and we reduce our contact, that's the bit that really makes the, the significant difference. And that's the bit we all can play our, our part in. Mm. Okay, so getting a booster jab. Does it make sense, though, in such a small country, Martin, to have different policies in each region? If I look, and I've um, tried to read about this, excess deaths in Scotland, um, they don't appear to be much better than in England and Wales. I understand it's a complex picture with various waves and there's a lack of early data, but from the reporting that I read, it doesn't look as if Scotland has done any better than England or Wales or indeed Northern Ireland? Well, it, it, as you see, it is a complex picture. I think I think we have done as well as we can do with the powers we have. Uh, the UK's political situation is one where we have a, a union parliament which also acts as the English domestic parliament and then we've got the other three nations with their devolved assemblies with responsibilities. Now, in normal times, you could argue that you can plan ahead and make reasonable decisions for the devolved areas. But when you're dealing with an absolute crisis where, you know, this Omicron variant is is multiplying, uh, doubling at a, a rate of between one and a half in every two days. So you need to make pretty fast decisions. We're hamstrung by being not being able to make decisions as fast as we would like because we don't have the financial clout. So when England's ministers decide for what it requires for health, the Treasury steps in and, and kicks in with the resources. That doesn't happen for any of the devolved nations. So I think we're we're fighting with one hand tied behind our backs, but we're doing a pretty good job at lessening the impact as as we are doing. Okay, yes, it is a fast-moving situation, but we're two years into the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. Why not get better representation and coordination at Westminster and a coherent nationwide strategy? I, I, I think, to be, to be fair, there's been pretty serious attempts from all four nations to work on a four-nation strategy, and where, where that can be done, it, it is done. I think the big problem we have just now with the pace that things are moving at is that there is a, there's a sort of lack of moral authority with the leadership from Westminster in that the government has faced a, a pretty major rebellion from its own members over fairly modest COVID restriction measures just the other week. Um, so I don't think the Prime Minister has the moral authority to take the decisive action he needs to take to prevent a much bigger catastrophe in the early new year. Um, okay. Whereas that isn't the case with the devolved nations where there is effective leadership being shown in, in all three, to be fair.
But one could argue, if I put the counterpoint, that that is because those MPs perhaps feel the economic weight of the sanctions and the restrictions being imposed more than than devolved MPs might do, that, that they have the responsibility in Westminster, as it were, to balance both the restrictions and the economic impact. Well, you, you can't look at one without looking at the other. And the reality is we know that the the rate that this is expanding at is going to result in a very large number of people becoming ill. And even if that illness is milder, that's going to mean staff absences. It's already knocking out rail infrastructure. Trains are not running the same way. We know that there's the serious impact going to be placed on the health service. Can they then fulfil their normal operations if they're down on staff because of COVID infections? So it, it impacts on the economy. And already people are stepping back from what they would normally do at this time of year, the type of socialising, the eating out, mm. the enjoying. So, you know, entertainment businesses, this is, should be the busiest time of the year, are absolutely hammered because people are rightly yeah. taking precautions for themselves. So so you can't look at one without the other. We need to find no, a way sure. of minimising this. But I mean that in terms of responsibility, I'm talking about balancing yep. the, the government's budget in terms of what the Treasury spends, not the economic impact on, on mm. restaurants, which, which we understand. And Treasury has pledged extra money for the nations and regions. Is that not enough? It may not be enough, and, and certainly it, it's largely smoke and mirrors. We know from the, the announcement from yesterday, the extra $1 billion that uh, the Chancellor Sunak promised um, to businesses means about $80 million for Scotland. So that's a pretty small you know, amount, and that's because it's largely previously announced money. It's not new money. Um, so there's an element of smoke and mirrors here. I think uh, we've got a lot more pain economically to go through before we get out of it, and I think that pain will be worse because measures haven't been brought in early enough to limit the limit the damage and I think we've got a window just now um, we know that a lot of economic activity slows down over Christmas for, for many sectors we know that the vaccines are working and we know that they take a week to two weeks to kick in once people get their booster so if we can get people vaccinated over the next few weeks and there's a massive ramp up of that programme across the entirety of the UK, yeah. all nations, um, we really can limit the damage that this this virus does uh, coming out in, in the new year. So we've got a limited window to act and we've all got to be acting. OK, so does that mean that Boris Johnson should have brought in extra measures before Christmas or is Christmas still safe in I, your view? Well, I think he probably should have brought in because, you know, this virus is multiplying at an exponential rate. So if you delay two days, it's it's double if you believe four days it's, it's four times so you would see the whole of the UK again. in a lockdown now I don't I don't know if it needs a full lockdown I think the measures that uh, as, as has been done in Scotland will limit interactions if everybody that can work from home is working from home if people are restricting the number of social engagements that they attend the number of people they meet and but, mix up with but that's it, it effectively a big. lockdown it's just a sort of self-imposed one yeah, but it still means business can continue for, for the main part. And, and if we ask ourselves what is most important to us, for most of us, it will be being able to be with friends and closest friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can get on with your work and do that, I think most people would be relatively happy. That would make the business that require support would be a smaller proportion than, than it might otherwise be if this virus runs dry and we get a much worse situation. And the reality is we won't know for certain how bad this virus is until it's too late to take preventative action. So I think preventative action just now could save an awful lot of 
both physical health misery and also economic misery. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Ministers in Northern Ireland will discuss potential new restrictions to curb the spread of Omicron later today. Cases of the virus are continuing to rise in the region, as they are across Britain, with the DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson among those to have tested positive. Stormont's Health Minister Robin Swan says that there will be additional asks of the public after today's meeting. A man has denied murdering the Conservative MP David Amos in Essex. He was stabbed multiple times whilst meeting constituents in Leon C in October. Ali Harbi Ali has also pleaded not guilty to preparing acts of terrorism between May 2019 and September. The 25-year-old from North London is due to go on trial in March. And just lastly, business confidence in the UK has plunged to the lowest level since the nation was still under lockdown. A measure of business sentiment from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation returned to negative territory between September and November for the first time since April. Consumers are choosing to stay away from shops and restaurants amid concerns about Omicron, and that has hurt trading at a vital time of the year. So those are a few of the political, even economic stories in the UK today. Let's talk about something bigger, though. Egregious lobbying by the former MP Owen Patterson. Contracts awarded to friends and family. How Boris Johnson paid for his Downing Street flat renovations and appointing a Tory donor to the Lords. A series of government scandals has raised the question about whether this government is corrupt. Chris Bryant, the chair of the Parliamentary Standards Committee, described Patterson's lobbying as, quote, a corrupt practice. The former Prime Minister John Major told the BBC that the UK is broadly politically corrupt and Labour has said that corruption is rife right through the Conservative government. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Professor Liz David Barrett, who is director of the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex. Liz, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for being with me. I mean, this is a a significant question for any voter across the UK. How corrupt do you think this government is? Well, as you say, we've seen a pattern of transactions that certainly look like corruption. So we've seen Owen Patterson abusing his office to lobby for companies that he was being paid by. We've seen party donors to the Conservative Party seeming to get peerages in the House of Lords, also favourable government decisions. So it seems that there is uh, a possibility to buy access. And we've seen uh, a host of scandals around COVID procurement contracts going to companies that have political connections, sometimes companies that are not qualified to do the job. And sometimes we've even seen a deliberate obscuring of who's getting those contracts um, by subcontracting to companies with political Mm. connections. So it doesn't look like uh, the company has won it, but in fact, they get the contract later down the line. So I think there's a, a number now of transactions and that starts to look like 
this is a pattern, it's something more systemic. Okay, so yes, how systemic it is. Um, having said that, um, the UK ranks 11th on the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. Boris Johnson saying, I genuinely believe the UK is not remotely a corrupt country. What do you make of, of those views, the kind of counter view that this is, you know, that actually Britain broadly is still free from corruption? Well, I think it depends what your benchmark is. If you're comparing it to um, some other countries where you routinely have to pay bribes to get access to basic public services, then we're not in that position. You don't have to pay a bribe to get a passport in this country, and you do in many countries. But I think what's more important as a benchmark is the direction of travel. So are things getting worse? And I think there are quite a number of uh, pieces of evidence which suggest that things are getting worse. And that's not just about the pattern of transactions that we've seen, but it's also about the way that the government responds when there is a scandal. So the Owen Patterson case was a a key example here. He should have been punished by a 30-day suspension from Parliament. And instead, the government completely tried to overrule the system and change the whole system for policing the conduct of MPs rather than allow him to get that 30-day suspension of parliament, which is a fairly minor punishment, really, for for breaking the code of conduct. Um, Again, we've seen cases where the independent advisor on ministerial interest reported that um, he, in fact, found that Priti Patel had exhibited bullying behaviour that could have led to action by the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister decided not to take any action against her. And there have been other cases where the Prime Minister was under some pressure to launch an investigation, and he decided not to, even leading to the independent advisor on ministerial interest Mm. resigning. Um, So I think there's also that sort of direction of travel looks pretty negative. Mm. How much has the pandemic, though, weakened the defences against corruption? Because in a lot of the, for example, the contracts that were issued, the government defence is, and also, for example, for fraud when it comes to HMRC, to, to loans and so on that were given out, and even you know in the furlough scheme, it was that the speed of the crisis was so great that action, you know, even with some fraud baked in, was better than inaction. So on the procurement, um, certainly decisions did need to be made quickly and it was a very difficult market on which to buy PPE. But if you look at the experience of some other countries, there were other countries that managed to maintain a very competitive open contracting environment and also to be transparent about how they were letting contracts. So uh, it's not really clear to me why this government has failed to meet its transparency obligations around procurement. Okay, if you need to do things in an emergency, that might be justified. But you know, why not just publish all the information in a timely way so that people can look and see for themselves whether there are any conflicts of interest or, or issues that they might want to raise. But in fact, the government was extremely slow to publish a lot of this data about the procurement process and failed to meet its own commitments there on transparency. So, again, you know, it's, it's partly could be a, a good reason, but could also be that the pandemic is being used as an excuse, actually, for a lot of uh, informal practices which are not really justified and which other countries have managed to avoid. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Bloomberg uh, reported not so long ago uh, on the discoveries around the fraud um, that was uh, perpetrated against the business loans and and got that information sort of uh, through a lot of of investigation and data that largely came from Europe, in fact. 
Also, though, Liz, Labour has pledged an anti-corruption drive. I mean, how helpful is that? Obviously, they're an opposition. They're not in power. Um, how believable is is that? Well, I think it, it depends really what flesh they put on that. So at the moment, there's not a huge amount of detail to that. Um, they've talked about introducing a, a single ethics commission or anti-corruption body. Um, you know, what I would like to see is a number of reforms in this area. So, in fact, the Committee on Standards in Public Life recently made a whole set of recommendations about how we could make sure that um, lobbying and the revolving door are regulated much better and much more strictly. So there are some good ideas for reforms on the table, making sure, for example, that if you're moving from a public role into a business role, you need to um, get advice on that. That advice needs to be uh, on a statutory basis and you can't immediately go from a public sector role into a lobbying job, um, Mm. for example. Um, Things around making sure that appointments to public bodies are done on merit and not on political connections. So there are quite a number of things that could be done and I'd like to see a bit more flesh on the the bones of those proposals to see if, if they're good. Of what Keir Starmer has sort of um, broadly outlined, yeah. Um, I mean, this issue, though, um, and perhaps this is a kind of bright spot, it does have cut through, as they say, for voters. It does seem as if um, this idea of, yeah, of the revolving door and of, you know, how Mr Johnson is funding his lifestyle, Caribbean holidays and so on, that that and the Owen Patterson um, story have cut through. I mean, the by-election, the Tories were given a kind of a a thumping effectively and the Liberal Democrats won. So this is something that voters do care about. Is that, does that weigh in favour of of, uh, things improving? I hope so, but we can't rely too much, I think, on um, just voting as a check on power because we have general elections fairly infrequently and we know in this country because of the electoral system um, there are many seats which are quite safe, in fact. And so it doesn't work as a brilliant um, accountability check, the electoral system. I think it's also really important that those regulatory bodies have the independent independence and autonomy to be able to check what's going on in between elections. Um, and that's actually holding government to account in a in a much more continuous and consistent way over mm. time. Having said that, you know, it's it's good to see that this is cutting through. I think some of the public debate on this sometimes gets a bit caught up in, um, you know, how much money MPs are earning in second jobs or yes. how much time they're spending on them. And I think the more important issue, but one that is harder to pin down is how many government decisions are being distorted because in fact ministers are thinking about these private interests rather than thinking about serving the public interest. That's the really important thing because that's really potentially pushing government off course. And just briefly, on the business angle of this, if coming at it from a kind of corporate stance of influence uh, as well as perhaps money, what would be the solution for trying to keep those interests out or limited or boxed in when it comes to influencing government? So, you know, there is an argument for allowing business to be in a dialogue with government and be able to inform government about how regulation is affecting it or how any future regulation might affect it. So I'm not against lobbying at all. It's a really important part of a democratic system. But I do think it's important to be transparent about it, to publish better information about who ministers are meeting, um, make sure that we're regulating some of those new 
areas of communication around social media okay. and WhatsApp so that that's not a way of getting around it. Um, yes. And just, you know, I think it's in, in business interest as well to make that whole process more transparent so that they can get their arguments out there. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.